You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little show, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Before we begin today's show, my thanks to Kathy for becoming a patron uh, since our last podcast. Kathy, thank you so much for doing that. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month, head to patreon.com slash Oak Island to become a patron. Kathy, your uh, support of this show is humbling to me. It really is. I can't thank you enough. It means everything to me. And welcome to the Oak Island family. Uh, okay. It was suggested at the beginning of the off season that perhaps I do a season one rewatch Uh, which sounded like a great idea. So that's what we're going to do. Now, I have already recorded a podcast about season one, episode one. So in this show, we're going to do the first two episodes of season one. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to the old uh, podcast that I recorded, and I'm going to put that review in first. You're going to hear that for about the first 25 minutes of the show here. And then I'm going to come back and do episode two, that I just recorded now. So you're going to get both episodes together. Again, the first one is kind of old, so excuse some of the technical difficulties and some of the sloppy nature of it. Also, this was recorded in chronological order. It was sort of my test test balloon on how to do a review for a show because we hadn't even gotten into episodes yet. Um, and so I was doing it chronologically rather than the format that I use now and that I'll use for episode two, which sort of which is sort of the project by project format. So anyway, that's what this is all about here. We're going to do season one, episode one and two. Now, we also have a great interview coming up, which I'm scheduled to record next week. Hopefully that gets done. And then uh, I might interrupt this season one rewatch with that interview If not, you know, we're just going to keep plugging along here. This is a very short season. It's only a handful of episodes long, so we don't really have a lot to do here. And before you know it, it'll be, you know, October and the new season will be just around the corner. So uh, anyway, without further ado, maybe it's time that we uh, set our little uh, time machine back quite a few years (laughs) for everybody, for us. And also for the guys in Oak Island and uh, listen to my first ever episode review of season one, episode one of the Curse of Oak Island. Thank you guys so much for downloading and listening. And uh, after the seagulls, we'll be back with that little uh, time capsule here. The cold opening of the show sees Rick and Marty Lagina, Craig Tester, Dave Blankenship, and Dan Henske all kind of walking through the brush up towards the small monument to the rest all tragedy. Uh, you know, it's obviously a way to kind of start the show with the themes of danger and curse. And for those of you who don't know, the rest all tragedy refers to the death of four men hunting the treasure on the island. Robert Restall came to Oak Island in uh, 1959. Um, he worked there for the next few years. On August 17th, I believe, 1965, um, while working in one of the shafts uh, that they were um, digging, he was overcome by uh, poisonous gas. Uh, his son 
also named Robert Restall, attempt to save him, was killed in the process. So were two other men, uh, Carl Grazer, who I think might have been his partner. Um, I think it was his partner on the island, as well as another guy who worked there named Cyril Hiltz. Uh, all four men died um, as a result of this gas. Uh, and, and like I said, this is a way to kind of start us off with the dangers around Oak Island. Now, the show likes to say the danger is the curse, but obviously, you know, we, we can also assume that uh, it's pretty dangerous trying to dig a 200-foot uh, uh, hole in the ground going down there for work. Um, all the while we're seeing this, there's sort of this weird dystopian imagery with shots of uh, an abandoned and kind of rotting school bus, uh, trucks, playground, uh, along with obviously old and unused buildings and equipment. It's uh, probably still just the editors going for this mysterious and cursed feel. Um, but it's a strange choice for sure. Uh, without doubt, the island has changed since episode one as the Laginas have poured more money into it. But this little montage still seems a bit extreme to me. Uh, the opening sequence, which continues, um, it's about 10 minutes before the themes and titles. Uh, if you've already watched it, it's divided into two sections. Uh, they call it the story and the test. This is sort of the introduction to what you're about to see, really, for the next few years. Uh, in the story portion, Marty talks of how he and Rick got involved in this whole Oak Island thing, invoking that famous Reader's Digest article, which we examined in episode one of this podcast. He then follows uh, that with a nicely condensed sort of two-minute recap of the Oak Island hunt and the highlights of all the peculiar things they've found during the centuries of the hunt. Uh, within this story section, I just wanted to mention that Marty says uh, that, quote, John Wayne was involved. Uh, unquote. Now, it's a popular thing to kind of lump John Wayne in with other famous people like Franklin Roosevelt, who took part or at least had a, you know, a real interest in this hunt. The problem is, with regards to John Wayne, it's not really true. Uh, Wayne's involvement is, I can only describe it as tangential at best, and, and he never actually visited Oak Island as far as I know. Uh, I think if you're going to be called involved, uh, I think you had to at least step foot on the island. <laughs> Uh, Wayne was just the part owner of a company that Dan Blankenship uh, and his previous partner before the Lagina brothers had contracted for a piece of digging equipment. Uh, like I said, Wayne was just sort of a part owner of that. Um, and that's about the entirety of Wayne's involvement. There was some idea that maybe uh, this company would help to get Wayne involved some way. I I'm not really sure how, um, but that nothing ever came of that. Um, so it is a little weird to kind of lump John Wayne into all this. Thought I'd point that out. Marty then finished up by giving some of the popular theories on, the Oak, on Oak Island, on the origin of this, including the now really popular Knights Templar theory. Um, some, he also says, quote, something from the Spanish plundering the New World, which is <laughs> rather broad. And also, quote, people who credibly believe it's the lost manuscripts of Shakespeare. If nothing else, it's really kind of interesting to see where the Lagina's uh, heads are at, so to speak, in this, uh, what their thoughts are in this early stage of the show. So we move on to this test portion of the opening segment. And uh, as it begins, we can see that it is uh, winter on Oak Island, which is uh, certainly a rare sight for this show. Uh, you don't really see winter much. Uh, the test so to speak, begins with Marty and Rick kind of giving their individual background. Marty coming from the energy business and Rick being a retired uh, worker for the U.S. Postal Service. 
they also offer a kind of a little more information on why they are on Oak Island and some sort of like personal background sort of as it relates to the hunt and their relationship to each other. Uh, all the while, the team is looking at dirt from drilling samples brought up uh, by uh, a well drilling company uh, who, again, is <laughs> poor folks are doing this in the winter, which cannot be ideal. Uh, but Marty says before the digging starts that they need to find something they can date pre-1800, which is something he says no one else has. Uh, but they never exactly they never say exactly where on the island this hole is being drilled. I guess just from looking at it, it's sort of the general area of the money pit, uh, but they don't really say for sure. Honestly, it's all kind of weird. I have no idea why they would be there in the winter drilling the hole in no particular place unless, and, you know, honestly, this is likely the case. What we're seeing is an example of how shooting the show is affecting the work itself. I mean, uh, they wouldn't do this dig in the winter, but they needed probably needed some sort of introduction for the show, and this drilling project is made to look as though if they don't find something, then the whole show's over. Uh, thus the test, so to speak. But alas, they find pieces of pottery at 165 feet down, which brings us to a good place for a commercial break. So as we come back from break, uh, we see the brothers are crossing the causeway and heading back to Oak Island. <clears throat> it's five months later. It's summer, thankfully. And they are headed to Borehole 10X. And our first introduction to perhaps the most fabled project of what we'd call sort of the modern era of the Oak Island treasure hunt up until this point. This point being the airing of the show. Um, I say up until this point because I really think the current work on Smith's Cove is, is certainly... Um, Something that will rival for that title of, uh, you know, fabled project in the modern era. What I like most about this rewatch of episode one here really is the historic snapshot we get. It's hard not to think as we look at these scenes of 10X with its older buildings and decaying sort of unused workings uh, that this is probably how it looked when Dan Blankenship stopped work on his this his signature project really more than 30 years earlier. Uh, when we see the show now, this is kind of all gone. It's been cleared away for massive and really expensive machinery. But by rewatching this episode, it's it's a great reminder that Oak Island saw decades and decades of people doing really backbreaking work, often on very tight budgets and usually by hand. And we can't go on without mentioning the fabulous and grand entrance of Dave Blankenship. <laughs> For those not watching along, the show's most colorful character rolls up in his ride-on mower. <laughs> the perfect, uh, modest, yet hilarious entrance for really a modest, yet hilarious guy. Uh, so as opposed to the work we saw in the opening segment of the show, we know exactly what is going on here in this project we're watching. The team is going to drop a camera into Borehole 10X. The camera they're using is the Inuktan Spectrum 90, and according to the company's website, it is, quote, ideal for the remote visual inspection of subsea structures, nuclear power installations, pressure vessels, storage tanks, pipelines, or any industrial structure that precludes manned entry, unquote. The camera is rated to a depth up to 200 feet. Uh, it can also be upgraded to be able to go as much as 1,000 feet and comes with features like, and again, I quote, variable intensity LED lighting, optical and digital zoom, automatic or manual focus, and exposure control in 
inclinometer. <laughs> An inclinometer is something that kind of shows you the pitch of where you are. You use it on planes to see your rate of ascent and that kind of thing. And an accurate position feedback. So I guess the point of me saying all this is they didn't go to the mall and buy this. <laughs> uh, while we're watching on the work, we're watching the work being done. Marty kind of explains the importance of 10x. And maybe it's time here to pause uh, for a moment and talk a bit more about 10x. Now, the history of 10x is a project. Uh, the the 10x project is more than enough to fill probably multiple podcast episodes. But since we haven't talked about it all that much on the show so far, let me just give you some background info. A lot of these um, groups of people form companies to uh, to you know to to do the work the current company is actually called Oak Island Tours uh, but the Triton Alliance was a company that included Dan Blankenship and his partners and they were drilling uh, what can we, we can call sort of exploratory holes in the area around the money pit I think what they were essentially looking for was sort of an, an alternate path like a back door uh, to try to find the treasure uh, without having to go straight down the money pit and into you know, salt water and flooding and all that kind of thing. Dan used dowsing rods, not the most scientific method I know, but uh, to locate what he thought was uh, what we refer to as an anomaly of some kind of uh, about 185 feet just to the northeast of the money pit area. The hole they drilled in that spot began as a small hole, only a few inches wide. It would soon grow to become this amazing 10x project which is now something like 235 feet deep, 8 feet wide, and about 180 feet of it includes railroad tanker cars welded together and set one on top of each other into the hole to keep it from collapsing. <laughs> like I said, there is a lot to talk about in 10X, uh, but I just don't want to go into it too much because that will dominate the whole show. Uh, but Marty does say some interesting stuff while explaining why 10X is so important, giving us insight into why it commanded so much attention over the years. He explains how 10X relates to the money pit by saying, quote, we pump air down one, bubbles come up the other, unquote. And also noting that they are two holes on the island with salt water on top of fresh water, which Marty says, quote, doesn't usually happen and describes as extraordinary. Uh, before we go into the commercial break, uh, we get a look at the cameras spotting something strange to the team, and uh, we also get this quick shot of a crow squawking while flying away from a dead tree branch. Listen, I got to say this here. Um, I'm really glad we don't have any more of these ridiculous <laughs> elements trying to make everything seem spooky. But in good cliffhanger fashion, the guy sees something, and we go to our next commercial. After the break, we get to meet the incredible Dan Blankenship. For those of you who don't know, Dan passed away on St. Patrick's Day earlier this year. Dan was 95 years old and has always been part of the show. He'll be missed by everyone involved in both the show and the hunt. Before we meet Dan, Dan though, I have to say I absolutely love the shot of the two signs which hang side by side in front of his house. One is this lovely and rather friendly carving that says the Blankenships and this warm and welcoming the script, while right next to it hangs a big no trespassing sign. <laughs> it's just, this really is kind of a peek into Dan's time on the island, which uh, was uh, often tar often marked by what we would call sort of arguments and confrontations and <laughs> 
and also certainly Dan's protectiveness for his work in the island. Um, for many years, no one was allowed on the island, and Dan made sure of that himself. Uh, we see there's more on that as the years go by, for sure. Here <laughs> we see the see the brothers rolling up to Dan's driveway in their SUV, and for a little perspective, Dan Blankenship's house is uh, located on the opposite side of the Money Pit. So if you're looking at a map, uh, the Money Pit being sort of towards the east, Dan being towards the west. Uh, same as Dave, his son. Um, they the the. Marty and Rick are coming to show Dan a video of the Spectrum 90 camera, so they want to bring him over to the war room. Uh, those, This is not the war room we see on the show today. This is kind of the original, much more quaint war room that was located at Dave Blankenship's house, and uh, it certainly isn't as uh, theatrical as the current one. Uh, the purpose is to kind of get Dan's opinion on what the camera saw in the cavity over 200 feet below the surface of the bottom of 10X. Dan actually dove down there himself, which is nothing short of crazy when you think about it. Uh, specifically, they're showing him what appears to be some sort of beam or rod that extends vertically from the floor to the ceiling in this opening, this, this cavity area. But as they're reviewing it, the video fails. And Rick, along with Jack Begley, who is um, Craig Tester's son, can't get this video restarted on their computer. It's uh, an obvious computer glitch, and those of us who have worked with large video or audio files have all kind of wanted to bang our heads against the wall when things like this happen, and they do happen, but it's treated here as if it's some sort of paranormal phenomenon. <laughs> but I have to say, it, it kind of seems really obvious that the guys don't think that. They're all sort of just laughing and smiling about it, and it's the first time you hear this thing where you just sort of blame it on Oak Island. You know, uh, This is a popular theme you're going to hear for a long time in this show. The next scene in this uh, segment... Brings us back out to the island with the Lagina's Range Rover being followed by a huge truck from Valley Well Drillers. It's a company in Nova Scotia that does all sorts of drilling projects. It's also the same company we saw digging in the winter in the opening segment. Uh, here it is said that the ultimate goal, this is by the narrator, is to re-excavate the money pit. But that Marty needs proof of something being there before he invests the money. It's interesting here to think that uh, years later... As we sit here waiting for the sixth season of the show to air, that this ultimate goal <laughs> stated in season one, episode one, uh, really hasn't been realized. Um, and I, I gotta say, a lot of, you know, re finding and re excavating the money pit has certainly not been the focus of a lot of the show. Now, the plan here is to get a better idea of what's at the bottom of 10X. As I mentioned, they're convinced that 10X and the money pit are sort of intimately related. They're going to try and do this by pumping water out of the bottom of 10X, hopefully bringing it up, bringing up other stuff with it. So essentially forcing water down there uh, or air down there and then bringing everything up along with the water that's in there. Now, I'd say, you know, I want to stop here and say that I'm always taken aback by the sort of violent nature of some of this work. And this is not, I mean, this is a high pressure pump that's forcing incredible amounts of water at a pretty decent velocity into a giant steel container. I mean, if they think that what is down there might be, you know, priceless holy relics in air quotes or the lost manuscripts of William Shakespeare, they may bring up some evidence of that, but they're much more likely going to destroy a lot of it in the process. And I'm not just saying this about the Laginas 
or this particular project. As we go through this journey together of uh, the history of Oak Island, you're certainly going to hear me mention this again. I mean, for the love of God, if you really think the Holy Grail might be down there, can we maybe use a method less likely to just rip it to shreds? Um, as this is happening, let's just continue. As this is happening, Marty once again talks about how salt water being in 10x is strange. He uses the word suspicious this time. He points out that other wells dug on Oak Island around that area hit freshwater, which the narrator uses to bring up the possibility of booby-trapped flood tunnels. Well, you know... At this junction, I'm going to sort of accept Marty's interpretation here under the proviso that I'm going to start digging into whether or not this is actually true, that finding salt water down a hole 100 yards or so from the ocean is actually suspicious. Uh, but let's move on. The pumping involves draining water back out into the ocean via Smith's Cove. So it's going, they're they're pumping in down into 10X. It's coming back up 10X into this large container. Um, then the water itself is going to drain out, hopefully le just sort of leaving the everything that isn't water, all the dirt and anything else they might find sitting in this large container. So the water they're draining is going out into, and into uh, Smith's Cove. Um and this allows the show the opportunity to sort of introduce the viewer to the man-made workings in the cove, including box drains for the uh, previously mentioned booby trap flooding system. But being at Smith's Cove also ushers us into one of the weirdest segments I could remember on the show. And when I rewatched this again for the podcast, I really was... Almost laughing at this. I, I just thought this was such a weird segment. So this is what happens. Rick is looking out towards the, you know, with, with the island at his back uh, at the hose running down 10X. And he sees what is quite obvious, <laughs> uh, a piece of driftwood sticking out of the rocks at what is low tide. He runs over there. He points it out. He runs over. He looks at it, and he describes it looking as a tusk, like an elephant tusk coming out of the water. Rick then calls Marty, who brings Dan Hensky and Charles Barkhouse down to see it. Barkhouse is known as sort of the island historian. He also conducts uh, some of the official tours in Oak Island and helps run and curate exhibits on the island. Uh, Dan Hensky is someone who's been working on this island uh, alongside Dan Blankenship for decades. But back to this tusk. It's in this very scene where we can find the first and really good example of how this show is often frustrating to those of us who are seriously interested in the Oak Island mystery. The narrator comes on and suggests that this could be a marker, or, incredibly, he says, quote, a booby trap meant to puncture the hull of any boats that came ashore looking to steal Oak Island's mysterious bounty. It's this type of leaping to ridiculous conclusions by the narration, and, and this is by the narrators, not by the brothers uh, uh, or, or anybody on the show, but it's this kind of ridiculous leaping to conclusions that can really be frustrating. Uh, it's a piece of driftwood. Everyone there admits to never seeing it before, and Barkhouse and Hensky spent a lot of time on Smith's Cove, so how could this possibly be an ages-old booby trap 
that they've never seen before. <laughs> Only just now, and it's sticking a foot and a half out of the water. Uh, it's a really strange segment, uh, and it's really just kind of annoying. Here we get our first introduction to uh, Marty's son, Alex Lagina, who was in the SUV, uh, probably heading up for the first time and heading out with his father to Oak Island. Um, Alex will go on to be a big part of the the, uh, the Dig team and also a big part of a spinoff show that's now on the History Channel called The Curse of Civil War Gold. Alex is described at this point as an experienced diver, um, and Marty says he is here to dive on stuff found on a side-scan sonar that has never been checked out. So, what exactly is side-scan sonar? Uh, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration describes side-scan sonar as creating a picture or an image of the seafloor. It measures the strength of how loud, in quotes, the return echo is, and it paints a picture. Um, hard areas of the seafloor, like rocks, reflect more sound and have a stronger or louder return signal than softer areas like sand. Areas with loud echoes are darker than areas with quiet echoes. Objects or features that rise above the seafloor also cast shadows in the sonar image where no sound hit. The size of the shadow can be used to guess sort of the size of the feature. So basically what you're doing is you're running sonar over over an area and you're getting yourself sort of a um, topographical image of what the bottom looks like. Allowing you to see maybe some things that look unnatural or strange down there. Uh, before the scene's over, <laughs> there's this great exchange between the two I want to point out. Uh, as they're crossing the causeway onto the island, Marty says, uh, here's where you'll spend the rest of your summer. <laughs> and Alex sort of chuckles and responds, hopefully not the rest of my life. And I can only imagine uh, how many treasure hunters of the last two plus centuries must have stepped foot on Oak Island for the first time, assuming that they would not be spending the rest of their lives there, only to probably spend the rest of their lives there. Uh, Rick and Marty then bring the team out on a boat, pretty nice boat too, to see where they will dive. Uh, on the way, they pass Fred Nolan's house, which they point out it gives us a chance for the show to it gives the show a chance. I'm sorry to discuss the incredibly important person in uh, the history of Oak Island. Fred Nolan, the work he accomplished, and uh, his often adversarial relationship with Dan Blankenship. There's a really kind of cool exchange where uh, where Dave says they, um, you know, they didn't believe each other, didn't trust each other, and 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 Alex uh, intimates that maybe they were even trying to deceive each other, which is kind of a an interesting point. For years, Fred Nolan was the only other person to live on the island or I should say to have a house on the island, because uh, he famously never actually slept on the island. Um, that's another story for another day. So is the fact that he had to take a boat over to the island because for much of the time, uh, Dan would not allow him to drive to his house on the island because, Dan, I own the land um, that the causeway came onto. So, again, this is a long story, a very rich history between Dan and Fred, um, not only in their relationship, but what they found together as they were partners, I believe, in the beginning and then separated. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that somewhere down the line. Rick then bring, begins to brief Alex on uh, what the dive targets are. He's, he's showing him an anomaly on what looks like sort of an aerial photo. And um, he says that the main target here... Uh, after he points out sort of, you know, one specific anomaly and then some other things, he says he kind of 
brings it all together by saying that the main target is Smith's Cove and the potential of possible box drain be still being intact. It's an interesting note here that Rick says um, that Dan Blankenship believes that, quote, maybe, just maybe, there's still remnant of the artificial beach, unquote. And that, again, quote, one of the five finger fingers of the drain might still be partially intact, this is very different language than we use now when it comes to these kind of things. And we know from the, the very past season of the show that there is a lot to uncover in Smith's Cove. But at this early stage, it's kind of a rare thing for one to admit that the finger drains might not even be there anymore or certainly might not be intact. We then hear the narrator tell the tale of Frederick Blair, a former Oak Island treasure hunter who wanted to prove that salt water in the money pit was coming from the ocean, though I'm not sure where else it would have been coming from, but that's anyway how it was described uh, on the show. Uh, in 1898, Frederick Blair um, poured red dye into the pit and then pumped water into it along with the dye so that he can sort of follow the path, you know, kind of reverse the water and follow the path that the money pit takes, uh, that the water takes to get into the money pit. Um, this is one of those pieces of data that I, I, I want to off, I want to explain is often used by skeptics of the island. What Blair found when he did this was that the dye did in fact make its way out onto Smith's Cove, which is on the eastern shore of the island, but also on the southern, two different spots on the south shore of the island, also fairly close to the money pit. Uh, now, the show says that this test, and I quote, proved that there was not one, but at least two separate booby trap flood tunnels preventing access to whatever lies at the bottom of the shaft. Uh, unquote. Let me just say this. To many skeptics, this, this test did exactly the opposite. And instead of it offering evidence of multiple booby traps, uh, the salt water in the area is, in fact, a, you know, it's more, offered more evidence to the, to the fact that this salt water is more a natural occurrence rather than some sort of elaborate man-made plan to stop the, uh, you know, people from searching the money pit. It's an interesting thing to kind of think about. Um, it's, again, one of those things that we haven't gotten to the bottom of, like so many things. It's been, you know, here we're talking about something that was tested, you know, almost 100 and over 120 years ago. And still we kind of don't have an answer. This is something that, as we'll discover as we go through the other shows, that uh, the Legina brothers did also try to examine um, to, to little or no avail. Uh, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting concept to think about. It's also a good place for another commercial break. So this brings us into our final segment of the show. Rick and Marty are back at Dan Blankenship's house to get him sort of up to date on the work they've done. And it's kind of important here to note that the Laginas and Dan are partners in this search. And I, and, and I think this scene does a good job at showing this. It's kind of often lost on viewers since the Laginas are the, you know, sort of the stars of the show. But they're financial partners with Dan. Partner, he, he is a decision maker in this organization and he is um, definitely a partner in what they're doing. 
So coming to him for uh, advice or or even approval on work makes all the sense in the world. Uh, Dan mentions in, within this conversation, it's just, just sort of basically a, a re uh, a wrap up of what they've done. I, I like that Dan mentions the word obsession in their conversation, describing his half century of work on the mystery. Uh, it's a word that uh, Rick kind of later takes issue with. Once again, though, here, it's hard not to think uh, that many a searcher who became obsessed with the Oak Island started with these very same thoughts uh, that he won't be obsessed or isn't obsessed, only to watch their life become forever entangled with the Oak Island mystery. Uh, the show ends with the brothers going back to their project over at 10X and shoveling out some dirt uh, that they pumped from the bottom of the borehole and out of this large steel container. Uh, Marty finds it on, in, on a shovel, uh, you know, within all a bunch of silt and dirt, a, a, a piece of decayed metal. It doesn't look particularly interesting, uh, but in true uh, Curse of Oak Island fashion, it leads the narrator to uh, into a couple of minutes of uh, nothing short of pontificating and exaggerating over what it might mean for the history of America and the history of the world. Uh, and that really brings us to the end of the show of Season 1, Episode 1 on the Curse of Oak Island. All right, it's time to discuss Season 1, Episode 2 now of The Curse of Oak Island. And, and I think it's worth noting, after we're able to watch Episode 2, we can really see the difference between the two. Uh, like most pilots, Episode 1 was done in a sort of a different format, had a different feel to it because of what they're trying to accomplish with the pilot, which is to convince advertisers and to convince uh, you know, executives at the History Channel and their parent companies that this is a great show and compelling and spooky and all that kind of stuff. So that's why you get those dystopian scenes and these kind of the crow flying away and a lot of shots of abandoned stuff that are probably no longer on the island. Uh, we got all that. We don't get that in episode two. What we get in episode two really is the first episode of what the show will become and what we're kind of used to. The second episode here looks a lot more like the episodes we have now, certainly format wise and, uh, and the, and the approach to it. Um, obviously it has its differences, but you can see that, uh, this was sort of the first episode proper, you know, beyond, beyond what we saw in the pilot. It starts off though, with a rather large recap of Oak Island's history and then a lot of talk about the Lagina's history on the island. So we're still presenting um, this as a new concept to the uh, History Channel viewers here. You know, um, again, the island looks very, very different, just like it did in episode one. There's a lot of these old cars and old buildings. There's a lot more trees. Things haven't been cleared out the way they have. Uh, you can really see from looking at this and then watching the, uh, you know, the latest episode of the current season just how much work the Laginas have done on this island. The episode actually starts off off the island as the team is getting on a yacht. Uh, Rick, Marty, and Alex Lagina with his long hair are getting on the uh, on a yacht here, and um, it is Tony Sampson's yacht. Uh, he is taking them to Smith's Cove. It's amazing to think that Tony Sampson has been part of this show since season one, episode two. Right? I mean, he's not considered a um, 
a member of the fellowship. He kind of does his own thing. As you know, Tony Sampson is the professional diver. He also now runs a tour company, Salty Dog Tours, uh, that um, does water tours of, uh, you know, on, on the water tours on pontoon boats of Oak Island uh, from a nearby marina. I've been trying like crazy to get Tony Sampson to uh, to come on this show here. I've been trying to contact him to no avail. If any of you know Tony, reach out to him. I'd love to talk to Tony about those tours and about his time on the island and his background. He's an interesting guy with a really cool history. Um, anyway, before we kind of get into the work here at Smith's Cove, um, the narrators call the team, and that by the team I mean the Laginas and their partners. The narrator calls it the, quote, best and possibly the last chance for the Oak Island mystery to get solved. I think that's kind of cool, especially when you think about how many years later we are and the mystery still is not solved. Um, like I said, Tony Sampson's at the helm of this boat and he's in his dive suit. So obviously he is going to be uh, uh, diving down, but he will not be alone. Tony is taking them to see what the narrator says is, quote, appear to be a series of man-made stone markers underwater in Smith's Cove, obviously. Marty Lagina and Alex Lagina both join in on the dive. They both get their wetsuits on and jump in. The narrator calls Marty the speculative one, right? He's the uh, the the unbeliever, right? He's the he and and says that he needs evidence of pre seventeen ninety five activity in the money pit before he will, uh, I guess, invest in the idea of excavating the money pit. He uses the word excavate the money pit. Uh, so you could see the idea here, and this is going to build throughout this season and certainly throughout this episode that the team is kind of divided into two camps, the Rick camp, the believers who think there's a treasure down there and we should do all that we can. And the Marty camp who is not so sure and needs to be convinced by the believers. Now, like any good such show of, uh, <laughs> of things like this, the believers vastly outnumber the skeptics. Uh, Marty really the only one at this time, Alex kind of is as well, but, um, He's definitely quick to uh, join the believers when he needs to. So the guys go down underwater. They show two large rectangular stones. Now, these stones are full of kelp and silt, and the water is not very clear at all. So it's very difficult to get a good look at what this is. It, that, that is not the fault of the show. Uh, this is just a difficult place to dive. There's a lot of water movement in that area. Uh, if you've ever been diving up in the coast of Maine, it's kind of the same way. I haven't been diving up there, but you can certainly see in the water how much silt and sand and dirt and kelp and things are moving around. It's a very alive uh, body of water. And I would imagine Nova Scotia's water and Mahone Bay are the same way. So we really don't get a good look at it. But so we take the guy's word for what they see. Uh, they give us a uh, sort of graphic there that seemed a bit exaggerated, but you get the point. Um Tony says that these stones, if you plot them, line up lengthwise and point towards the money pit. Now, there is a third stone that we didn't see. We saw only two on the thing. There's on, on the show, there's actually a third that Tony uh, claims is there as well. And he says if you line these three up lengthwise, they point almost directly towards the money pit. Uh, before the dive ends, for some reason, that then leads to this discussion about the G-Stone, which is a stone found by Dan Blankenship, I think, that had a uh, very Masonic-looking G symbol carved into it. Um, 
There's not a lot of information on the G-Stone other than it's there. Uh, we don't know how old it is. Um, and it also, there's no reason to believe that uh, one of the many Masons who are on the island didn't uh, carve it themselves. We have no idea. Uh, but it is a good chance for the show to start the Masonic connection, which, um, as we can see all the way back in season two, season one, was still a very big deal <laughs> for the History Channel, right? There are always going to be uh, Masons. There's always going to be Templars. That's always going to be part of, uh, of what, the, what the History Channel wants to portray. And then that co- sort of ends the dive, and we get kind of beyond that. We discuss it a little bit again later, but the next thing that we see is uh, Dave Blankenship along with Dan Henske and Jack Begley, um, over at 10X. It's good to see Dave again. I always enjoy Dave. I mean, Dave is a, a believer in the treasure for sure, but uh, he's a very practical guy and I love his attitude. Uh, it's missed. You know, it, it really is missed. It's a shame that he decided to no longer take part in the show. Anyway, that's a story for a different day. Um, they're looking at debris in this huge dumpster that we saw them blowing out of uh, 10X, the, the uh, previous episode. And uh, they, they've... You know, the water's taken away, and now they have all this dirt and rocks and everything that was blown out of there, and they're sifting through it on a sorting table. And this brings up, because they're finding little pieces of wood, a lot of talk about oak trees because of these wood pieces that they're finding in the spoils and wondering if they are oak. That then brings the narrator onto a conversation about the Henry Sinclair theory. Now, there's Henry Sinclair theory is bigger than this, but the, but the theory basically, the way they connect it here is that Sinclair planted oaks purposely on this island as sort of essentially his way to mark the location of the treasure. You know, go to the island that has the weird oaks. Uh, seems like that wouldn't be a very um, very low-key way to do it, but I guess that was his way <laughs> way to do it. Anyway, Jack pulls out some small bones. First thing you see when you look at them is they certainly look like chicken bones. Um, Jack says there could be a grave down there, and that's kind of... That's kind of fun to think about how, um, you know, the, this chat about a potential body parts found by Dan and 10X, but also makes you think of the bones found later in the season. Now, if you don't know, Dan sent a camera down to 10X. Now, 10X was Dan Blankenship's, and this is off the money pit, uh, this this shaft 10x it's not in directly in the money pit area proper and the team spent a lot of time on 10x in the first couple of years dan blankenship it was his life's work he was he sent a camera down there and this is where you see these sort of grainy pictures where he says is uh you know tools uh, a chest maybe a body there uh, is a you know a story about how when watching the live feed of the camera they saw a hand go by a lot of people think it was a glove but Dave and the others insist it was sort of a disembodied hand. Uh, so we're obviously with the bones. That brings up this this t- conversation um, and this discovery that Dave shows. They also never show the hand, and that's you know because I guess there is no recording of it. There's just sort of the Blankenships and Dan Hensky. I think Dan Hensky was there, their um, retelling of the story. But again. I kind of think it's cool that we find bones later and actually date them and figure out what they are. We don't do that here with these bones, at least not in this episode. So after this season, this, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm reading off a, uh, <laughs> reading off a, a note today. I'm not, I didn't put together a, a script, so there's a lot of ums and ahs here. Sorry about that. Uh, the team then goes to meet at the Folksel Tavern 
We're used to seeing the Mug and Anchor, I think it's called, but this is the Focusal Tavern, which also looks like a great place. Uh, and the team currently around the, the table here is Marty, Rick, Alex, Charles Barkhouse, uh, Dan Hensky, Dave Blankenship, Jack Begley, and Peter Frenetti. Now, they're talking about everything we've seen so far. This is sort of a uh, mid episode debrief, which we do get some of those. You know, I remember a few out on the picnic tables off the interpretive center and things like that. So we do get these sometimes. Um, They're talking about the dive. They're talking about the bones. And in this, Dan Hensky tells this absolutely grisly story. Of course, everybody's laughing about it because of the the weird way he's telling it, uh, you know, because he's telling it like it's nothing uh, about how he would lose little kittens into 10x he said kittens would like climb go up to the to 10x and not be able to this shaft this you know 100 foot plus shaft and not be able to tell the depth and then they'd fall in and he even invented this like net device to fish the dead ones out he says oh my god what a grisly story that was and he said he was pretty sure he got all of them but he you know maybe he didn't and that's where the bones are my goodness anyway later on there's another scene over at 10x and uh rick and now is joined by dave blankenship at the spoils and this is a hilarious scene and there's really nothing to this scene um they're talking about the bones that they found, which Dave just says, chicken bone, chicken bone, chicken bone. And they, they talk about rust and Dave's hilariously telling, uh, you know, Rick that he knows what he's looking at and all this kind of stuff. It's really it's a really funny scene. And again, shows you uh, how much Dave has been missed in the show. He really has. Um, it, the scene ends with Rick not liking the wash table that they're using, and he's going to go off and build a better one. Later on, we actually see him doing that, although we don't see this new uh, system that he's making uh, put into effect yet. But that's the whole scene. It's just, it's worth just commenting because of Dave and uh, the hilarity of Dave and Rick together here. Okay, Jack and Dan then go down to Smith's Cove to look for coconut fiber. Um, there's a nice history here of coconut fiber on the island and what it means. A lot of talk about how mysterious it is to find coconut fiber here. But of course, as I've explained to you many, many times, it's not that mysterious. Coconut fiber was sort of a ubiquitous tool used throughout the maritime industry for centuries. It was um, placed in the hold of cargo, into the cargo holds of ships to keep items, valuable items from moving around. Uh, it's a almost indestructible fiber, uh, lasts for centuries, which you're about to hear about in a little bit, but, uh, you, you know, it's, so it's, I guess it's weird if you found it naturally, it's obviously not natural because it's been peeled off the coconuts itself. You're not finding coconuts here, which would be even crazier. Uh, Alex and Peter then join in on the hunt. And there's a lot of talk here in this part about Dan's supernatural history of the island. And as they start talking about it, I thought to myself, oh, is this where they explain about Dan's most famous experience? If you don't know, they do a great job telling you on this. But while Dan was working with Dan Blankenship, Dan Hensky is working with Dan Blankenship on the island, he had a bunch of... um, you know, what's the word, paranormal experiences, and almost had what sound like kind of, I guess the word is like a nervous breakdown or something. It's hard to tell really what it is because I'm not a psychologist, but something along those lines, a frightening experience that causes him to, caused him to act just incredibly erratically. And one of those 
instances, and I think there was only one major one. I think there might have been one other one too, but this one here, where I think he felt he was being strangled or something. I forget the details behind it, but as a result, he swam naked from Oak Island off to the mainland, carrying with him, and this is not a joke, a globe, a math textbook, and a copy of the book Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley, which was a very popular book in the 1970s, where Priscilla sort of tell all about her time in Graceland and with the great king of rock and roll. The, obviously, Dan was uh, under some serious emotional distress here, but I also uh, found interesting what was on his reading shelf, <laughs> Elvis and Me, and a math textbook. I don't think I have either of those things on my reading shelf. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. As they're uh, racing to beat the tide here because they're digging in Smith's Cove trying to find coconut fiber, uh, you know, they finally do find some. And there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, the way they're presenting this is, oh, we're going to find some coconut fiber. I mean, you know, I heard there's rumors that they were there. So why are they doing this, right? I mean, they knew coconut fiber was there. They've seen it before. They've taken it out before. Not Certainly Dan has. Certainly Charles Barkhouse has. Maybe the Laginas haven't, since at this time they've only been on the island for five or six years. I think really what we're getting here is, a, and with this entire scene that we're about to see and the whole story behind the coconut fibers, is sort of a dramatic approach, a dramatic choice taken by the show to use the coconut fiber as a way to offer this piece of evidence into the record to the viewers, right? Why is there this coconut fiber? Is this coconut fiber? Why is it here? Why it shouldn't belong here? What does it mean? It is the one tangible piece of evidence that you can find on Smith's Cove still now that it points towards the beach being man-made and all of those crazy things that have happened. A lot of the other stuff has been destroyed or washed over, uh, you know, or needs a coffer dam in order to uncover, right? But you can dig and find this coconut fiber just with a shovel if you're out there at low tide. So it's really kind of a, an easy way to introduce in a dramatic fashion Smith's Cove and all that it could mean, right? I hope that makes some sense. I hope I'm I'm, I'm saying this correct, uh, and offer, also offer a chance to give some of the history of the Oak Island search and the things they found. It does seem like the team is really kind of acting again a bit here, uh, sort of acting out. It's not a very slick uh, reality show type scene because, again, the coconut fiber is not a surprise. And it's even more hilarious when Rick gives the fiber back to Alex and says to him, you, sir, are going to give that to your dad and make him eat it <laughs> after he sh <laughs> Alex shows the coconut fiber to Rick. Um, again, Marty knows that there's coconut fiber or that has, coconut fiber has been found in Smith's Cove. I think his question is, and everybody's question is, does that mean anything or was there just a shipwreck and therefore a lot of coconut fiber washed up on Smith's Cove and is still there to this day? That's the skeptical approach. Um, next, Alex and Charles, Jack Begley and Peter Fernetti go to the Katie University to have, a, um, have this fiber looked at. And Alex then says to Charles something like, okay, as he's driving the, the SUV. What are the theories about the fiber 
And then this is kind of cool because Charles then goes into two very strange theories, but I love the way the two of them are presented. The first one he says is the Templars. Now, I'm not sure how coconut fiber means Templars were there, and I'm not, he doesn't make that connection. Maybe he does off, you know, that didn't, that got edited out, but I'm not really sure how it works. But it seems obvious to me that what we really wanted to do here was do our first of many, 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 many dramatic recaps of the Knights Templar that are to come over the next, you know, eight, nine seasons and beyond, because uh, we get this great sort of, you know, actors acting out the Templar stuff and the story of Friday the 13th and all those things that we talked about. And there's just, just a dramatic scene about Templars. Charles then says... Uh, something about the Spanish theory, which he says, which he calls Dan Blankenship's theory, by the way, which is the idea that the Spanish were here and there's something to do with Spanish explorers and the and the treasure. There's there's a lot of theories that point towards the Spanish. Um, but the interesting thing about it is that it just sort of gets a few lines rather than the Templars who got this whole sort of dramatic thing. Anyway, the team meets with a gentleman by the name of Dr. Roger Evans, who's a biologist. Uh, the doctor does a great job explaining the makeup of coconut fibers and then shows us and them exactly how he's confirming that what he has here in this bag are truly coconut fibers. We don't get any dating or anything like that. That's going to come but he confirms their coconut fibers. So speaking of dating, next we meet in the war room. And here we see Craig Tester on a video call. So we've been doing this way before 2020, right? Doing these video conferences. And Craig has sent these coconut fiber pieces out for, for carbon dating. And they come back with a date between 1260 and 1400 AD. Very, very strange date. Now, as I said to you before, where can the coconut fiber come from? It can come from uh, most likely a shipwreck off of Mahone Bay that was carrying a lot of stuff in its cargo hold. And the storm blew all of the stuff towards Mahone Bay. The coconut fiber being among the things that would move the most because it's the lightest and float the longest because that's what coconut fiber does. So it washes up on a beach. It washed up on this beach. Over the years, it gets covered up. And then we find a lot of this and we immediately think of something clandestine rather than just a shipwreck. However, that becomes incredibly complicated if we're talking between 1260 and 1400 AD. But back up, what did the doctor tell us about coconut fiber? He told us that it kind of turns into this really, really strong, um, long-lasting fiber. So yes, indeed, this coconut fiber that is on a ship in the 1600s could be very, very, very old uh, because it did get reused. It did get moved around. This seems a little too old for my liking. So this is our first piece of evidence here that the team has found that is really kind of cool. That gives us a date that is just crazy, right? It doesn't make any sense other than trying to, you know, like I just did, twist your way into an explanation for it. Now, the story here with the team, and this is what we're seeing in this entire final scene, is that Rick and his guys, again, I mentioned this before, are trying to convince Marty to keep funding the dig. 
So in the first season, that's where we are. We're at a point where Marty and Craig are still the money guys, and this is absolutely true. Marty and Craig are the guys that have been funding this for the last couple of years. They are need to be convinced that uh, they can continue this. Personally, I don't know this for sure. I think the show was one of those steps that they took to convince Marty so that there was funding to help. But at this point, funding from the History Channel and Prometheus. But at this point, I don't think there is much. It's really just a snapshot of what these guys are funding and what they're doing, which is why the project is at such a smaller scale. Uh, where the fibers, the fibers and the information that it is a fi- that is fibers and when it's from is considered this huge win for Rick's pursuit to keep his brother in the uh, in the hunt. But as we've come to know, he does indeed stay in the hunt. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. I hope you enjoyed this little season one, episode one and two rewatch. Like I said, I have some other plans for the off season for the next few weeks. So we might not get back to this rewatch in the next podcast, but it is coming soon. So stay tuned for all of that. Uh, shameless plug time. Don't forget, I'm DJing on WDVR FM Wednesdays, 2 to 5 p.m. From 2 to 4, I do a show playing the music of New Orleans called the Bourbon Street Bistro. And then after that, from 4 to 5, a little drive time, Island Vibes, where we do songs with a bit of a tropical summer feel to it. Don't forget, you can really help the show out by becoming a patron. If you think this show is worth $5 a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Also, if you'd like to help the podcast out in another way, certainly you can do so, and we really would appreciate this, by leaving a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you get your shows. A big thanks to everyone who's done that. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Thank you for the kind words. Don't forget you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. I'm kind of a little more active on Twitter now than I've been, which is because I'm a baseball fan, and I've used my Digging Oak Island to make baseball comments. But anyway... I will continue to, uh, so I'll be on there if you need to contact me that way. Let's just put it that way. And again, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, though, the best way to do it is via email, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or direct message on social media, I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud, uh, please just make a note of that. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.